Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. Today we have with us Alex from IDEX. Alex, thanks for being with us today. Happy to be here, thanks for having me on. So let's get started with uh, just you, Alex, your background, and how did you get into crypto? And also, uh, I guess we should, uh, a congratulations is in order as well. Yeah, thank you. We are on day 15 of my my daughter's birth. So settling into a new routine, myself and my wife, uh, a lot going on. And I was telling our community, uh, it's an exciting time for both of my babies, both my new daughter as well as IDEX as we're working to bring some new things to market here. Awesome. Yeah, big congratulations to you and your family. Uh, that the Very exciting times. Uh, yeah, so give us a little background about yourself, Alex. Uh, how did you get into crypto? What was, what was your path that led you down this road to IDEX? Absolutely. So professionally, I've been working in the technology space for a little over a decade now. I started at a marketing analytics firm that was acquired by IBM, then spent time at Adobe, and prior to IDEX, Amazon. Uh, most of those roles were product management roles, so the liaison between the business and engineering. Uh, from a crypto perspective, I was really, my curiosity was peaked in, in 2012. There was a, a Wired article, the rise and fall of Bitcoin, up to $28 and back down to two. Um, I, I bought a little bit at the time through an exchange called CoinFloor out of New York that's uh, long since uh, gone out of business. And like most people, you know, bought a little bit, just curious what this thing was. And then as, as the price starts to go up, you start to pay more attention to it, dig a little deeper and, and learn more about the technology itself. And just got excited by the promise of, of what Bitcoin could bring, but didn't immediately jump into anything on the professional side. And it was the launch of Ethereum that really got me uh, more excited from really the product capabilities that bringing programmatic functionality on top of these digital assets, you know, what that kind of extension of functionality could potentially bring to the space. And there were a lot of different ideas being bounced around at the time. There's a great presentation from Vitalik in like 2014 or 2015, where he unveils Ethereum and the list of use cases on there are incredibly prescient. It's DEXs and um, prediction markets and uh, you know, the non-fungible tokens or representations of assets. It's like, it's, it's really interesting how well he did predicting that, you know, six, seven years ago. And uh, my co-founder and I, Phil, we actually worked on initially a fiat-backed stablecoin. Our premise, I think, was right, but early. It was users going to need dollars to transact on the Ethereum network. They're not all going to want to use Ether. Uh, at the time, Tether was a 250K market cap and only on the Omni network. We tried to raise some venture. We weren't successful. We we launched and actually had the first wrapped Bitcoin as well. Uh, so this you know kind of really pioneering some of the the use cases, but the demand just really wasn't there at the time. I think the DApps were still in their infancy. People who were trying them were happy to use Ether. So we pivoted to founding IDEX, uh, which was one of the early decentralized exchanges. Uh, built on kind of the premise that you could have a order book exchange with off-chain order book and matching engine, but paired with smart contract-based custody and settlement. So trying to bring those benefits of decentralized exchanges and non-custodial settlement and trading to the uh, trading landscape. Yeah, and maybe could you go into just a little background just for the audience of, you know, what does it mean to have an order book DEX? versus an automated market maker DEX? And how do those compare and contrast? Like what are the benefits to one or the other? So currently the DEX market is predominantly automated market makers. And there's really two components to it. It, it has to do with how does liquidity uh, get provided in these DEXs? And that's where this concept of an automated market maker comes in. So if you've traded on things like Coinbase or Binance, you're more familiar with an order book and that allows for individual market participants to put out a specific buy or sell order. I'm going to buy one ether at $3,500. Uh, someone else can then come along later and decide to take that order by taking the other side of that trade. AMMs 
uh, kind of flipped that around and, and said, we're not going to have an order book. We're just going to have balances of the two assets being traded, in, in this case, ETH and USDC. And the price will be static until someone comes and trades against it. And it, it's definitely a different exchange model. There's a lot of criticisms early on, and, and we ourselves were skeptical. Uh, but I think it worked really well in a resource-constrained environment, in particular, like the Ethereum layer one. So in that environment where transactions are expensive, there's limited throughput, only changing or only doing a transaction when the user actually wants to settle a trade had, had a lot of benefits. And so you kind of saw the explosive growth of AMM DEXs. But we don't think that's going to be kind of the end all be all for decentralized exchanges. And if you look at traditional markets, you know, they, the, I, the, there, there's the possibility for them to use AMMs as well, but they all use order book exchanges because it's the most precise way to express your own view or your own um, kind of perspective on where you're willing to buy and sell to the market. And so we're working on two different things at, at IDEX right now. Uh, the first is building out the order book exchange that has the performance, but also costs to make it competitive with centralized exchanges. So as I mentioned, Ethereum L1 in particular is, is resource constrained. It's basically impossible to run an order book on chain, so to speak, just because of the costs and limitations with transaction throughput. So with our new version, we've paired a high performance off-chain order book and matching engine. So you can think of this as the same technology that powers your top tier centralized exchanges. And we've paired that with the deployment of our smart contracts on Polygon. So Polygon has settlement costs that are much, much lower than Ethereum layer one. Uh, in this case, about a tenth of a penny per trade. So we're pretty excited about that because it allows us to have that UX, that performance and throughput of your traditional exchanges, but also with that unique elements of non-custodial and kind of being in control of your funds the entire time that only come from a DEX. Um, there's a second component that I just want to mention and happy to go into any of this in more detail. Uh, the second thing that we're doing is actually for the first time going to be merging these two designs and incorporating AMM liquidity pools into the order book. So as I mentioned, AMMs today, the only way to interact with them is through swap platforms and you're pretty limited in your trading options. It's basically market buy or market sell. Um, by integrating the AMM liquidity pool into the order book, we bring that those benefits of liquidity provision, uh, in particular that anyone can be a market maker by just depositing those two assets. But we do so on a platform where your more advanced traders can interact with both market buy and sell, but also things like stop loss, post only, as well as traditional limit orders. So we really think this is kind of the next step of exchanges blending these two designs together. Yeah, I can. I've always felt like you know automated market makers are great for what Ethereum has now, but it's it's not the best model necessarily. And I think like just like what you said, one of the major shortfalls of automated market makers is it, it's very difficult to set those stop loss or limit orders on those. Whereas order books, it, it's very easy to set that. You know, you set your price and it executes based on the price that someone else wants to buy or sell, and so. I don't know, like, what was the idea behind this? Uh, I think y'all call it hybrid liquidity, uh, you know, combining the order book and the AMM. Like, what, like, what was the main issue? Uh, you went into it a little bit, but what was the main issue y'all were trying to solve while doing this? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple things, and a lot of it came out of talking to uh, projects and, and teams like you guys. So when you think about... Um, you know, the job of market making and, and you've got professionals that are market making on, you know, the top tier exchanges, certainly something like Bitcoin is going to be liquid with millions of dollars on each side. You know, market makers are taking on a bit of risk when they do that process. They have to hold the assets in order to be able to provide the, the, the um, orders on the order book. They have to have sophisticated infrastructure in order to be able to uh, actually manage those orders in real time, manage their exposure to any market movements. It's definitely a professional job and there's not many people that can do it. So when we were working on our version of IDEX, it was easy to find market makers for your top five, 10 assets, right? ETH, USD, Bitcoin, you know, maybe some of the other major trading pairs. But as you go further down the list and 
uh, to, to other different assets, it's really difficult to find market makers that will take on that process without significant compensation, uh, both on both the balance sheet and kind of their time and uh, you know, using their technology. And so the flip side was, you know, when we talked to projects, they really liked the simplicity of what automated market makers bring. Either the project themselves is able to just deposit their assets into that pool and use it to generate liquidity, uh, or the uh, project is able to incentivize their community to actually provide that liquidity themselves by running a liquidity mining program. Yeah, so these, you know, we talked to the projects and it was really this, you know, when they realized what was involved with market making, like, okay, you got to talk to the market maker, you got to sign contracts, it's this big monthly cost, you got to give up all this inventory, this balance sheet risk. Uh, they said, forget about it, we're going to stick with our liquidity pools because it's familiar with us, um, familiar to us, we can get our community involved. There's, there's a lot of benefits uh, from that perspective to providing liquidity. So that's really where the genesis of the idea came from was how can we build a platform that allows for projects to make that first step to a more sophisticated trading platform, get out of a situation where the only option for their users is kind of this market buy, sell, swap interface, but in a way that doesn't require them to make this big leap to start uh, potentially doing things operationally or financially that maybe they're not prepared to do. And so that's where we really see this opportunity for IDEX hybrid liquidity is not only having liquidity from market makers on call it your major assets, but also being able to serve some of that longer tail of crypto assets in a way that the market has clearly shown a preference for. And you know, I think one thing you maybe see in, in conversations kind of throughout the, the, the crypto space is when contrasting Uniswap v3 versus Sushi v2, um, or the Sushi fork of Uni v2. And, and without going into too much detail, Uniswap v3 requires much more active management. It's definitely gonna be a job for pros. Sushi uses still the traditional just deposit and the formula will take care of market making. And I think you're seeing a lot of projects opt for the latter because of the simplicity. So we wanted to bolster the design we have of our high performance decks, our high performance order book exchange with this functionality that allows us to bootstrap liquidity across all assets, give users a way to earn a yield, attract them to the platform, as well as make it easy for projects to kind of graduate and move on from other platforms on which they're trading. Yeah. Have you all ever thought of implementing your own uni v3 clone, you know, the concentrated liquidity uh, onto your platform? Absolutely. And I think this is the first step in what we're looking at as an opportunity to continue to innovate by incorporating DeFi primitives, if you if you want to call it that, into an order book and matching engine. So if you think about, you know, the, the previous version of IDEX was this traditional order book and matching engine paired with a smart contract for custody and settlement. We're now layering in this AMM functionality. So it uses the same concept of the uh, liquidity pools as other AMMs, allows users to uh, trustlessly and without relying on a third party to provide liquidity to this order book exchange, which is something that hasn't been possible before, right? You can't do this on Coinbase or Binance. You have to trust whoever's market making that they're going to do a good job. They're going to have systems that can manage any risk. They're going to have you know, 100% uptime. They're not going to run off with your funds. All of those things go away because we're incorporating smart contracts to do that job. So the question then becomes, what other elements do we want to incorporate? And I think the logical next step is to start to explore other AMM types. So that could be concentrated things like some of the stablecoin options that allow you to concentrate liquidity uh, when you expect the assets to trade one-to-one. -one. So it's going to be stable coins or, you know, wrapped Bitcoin to REN VTC. That's going to be one of the things we're looking at. The other is how can we allow for more sophisticated AMM uh, market making, so similar to what UNIV3 is doing. I think what'll be interesting for us is because we have it paired with the order book, the order book is still kind of the ultimate version of the AMM uh, concentrated liquidity and that it gives you full freedom to express whatever you want at whatever price without any limitations or constraints put on it by the network in terms of throughput and cost. So we're really excited to see how these two kind of interact with one another. And you can imagine using the AMMs to bootstrap 
markets, get things going, liquidity mining program to build out that initial pool of liquidity. And then more and more market makers start to step in and uh, perform some of that concentrated liquidity role. And so that those two in tandem, we think is going to create a really nice product. Wow. Yeah, this is really interesting. So how does slippage, I guess, is slippage is obviously worse on an AMM versus an order book, but how does that work from a hybrid liquidity standpoint? Yeah, so this is super cool and probably where the bulk of the development has gone into is making the trading engine uh, intelligent enough to determine what is the best price execution. And the way I kind of try to visualize it, we actually have an article that will be coming out soon that's got some pretty cool graphics that shows this, is if you've ever seen some of the charts of the liquidity pools, um, the best way to visualize it is as kind of like a depth chart. So you've got you know price along the x-axis, it starts at the midpoint, and then on either side, it kind of curves upwards. As you move away from the middle, you get more and more liquidity. Um, that kind of represents the pooled liquidity where the more you want to trade, the further the price is going to move. And it's, you know, it's uh, kind of governed or managed by the formula of the AMM itself. You then have the the limit orders are layered on top of this kind of smooth continuous curve, and they look more like the step function that you're used to seeing on a traditional order book exchange. So you kind of have this base level of pool liquidity with these steps of increased liquidity whenever there's a limit order. And the trading engine is able to, when a user makes a trade, do that kind of intelligent matching against both the combined liquidity of the pool and the limit orders. And we've designed settlement mechanisms that can settle against either just the pool, if that's the best source of liquidity, uh, just limit orders, if they happen to be right on the, the midpoint in our, our the, you know, the best way, the best execution, or a combination of the two. So users won't have to worry about or distinguish, am I doing a pool trade? Am I trading against you know, another user on the limit order? The system is automatically going to route them into that best combination. And just the fact that limit orders can exist and users can place them, you're going to get better execution than you would from a liquidity pool of the same size. So that's something that I think is going to be a clear benefit to users is, you know, if you bring for a project, for example, if you bring the same amount of liquidity from one swap platform over to IDEXHL, then as other limit orders start to fill in, users are just going to get better pricing, better execution than they would elsewhere. Do you know if there's any... uh aggregators that are tapping into your liquidity right now? So we don't have any integrations at the moment, but that's going to be something we're paying attention to after launch. Um, One of the things that is interesting is uh, we're trying to figure out, you know, we've got the initial launch, we'll be having specific IDEX liquidity pools uh, that are kind of associated with our order book and matching engine. And the next step, one of the other research areas is how can we tap into liquidity pools in the broader ecosystem? Um, So there was an interesting uh, kind of research article a week or two ago from the guys at Starkware and Loopring talking about this concept of a single liquidity pool uh, that would reside most likely on L1, but that can allow for multiple different, uh, we call it kind of execution environments. So you could imagine the price, the XY equals K, could actually be a different in um, the Starkware L2, the Arbitrum L2, uh, the IDEX on Polygon L2, but they all settle back to the same L1 liquidity pool. So uh, that kind of idea is really interesting for us and would allow us to extend some of our composability as well. So we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, our goal here is really to build something that bolsters the liquidity and user experience of our high-performance order book exchange. And then the next step is how can we make that more composable and tapped in with the rest of the ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. Because I could see, you know, with, with the aggregators, you know, it's, it just seems like a good way to drive revenue to your protocol. And on that note, like how do y'all drive revenue to the protocol? What kind of fees are y'all charging on these trades? Yeah, so there are, it depends on whether it's a trade against the pool or against the uh, limit orders. So the taker fee is 25 basis points, 0.25%, regardless of what type of liquidity you're matched against. So uh, it doesn't matter if you're hitting the pool, a limit order, or some combination of the two. The difference is on where that fee is directed. If 
the the order trades against the pool or limit orders. Um, so like on other AMMs, the way that LPs get compensated outside of any particular liquidity mining programs is by getting a percentage of that fee. So we have of the 25 basis points, uh, 20 of those, so 0.2% goes back to the LPs in the pool. So over time, uh, there's a lot of research and kind of literature around this, but over time, as there's more and more trading on those markets, that's how you're going to see an increase in the value of the assets for those that have deposited into the liquidity pool. If the order trades against a limit order, then those fees go directly to the protocol. Um, so that's an addition. Uh, there's you know, kind of on a, a pool trade, it's five basis points. On a limit order trade, it's all 25 basis points. Um, the Those fees are then split 50% with the company. So 50% go back to us to finance further development, um, you know, kind of all the resources and team members that we need. And then the other 50% is given to IDEX stakers. And so we haven't touched on this yet, but we have a token, IDEX, that's used by individuals to run what we call an IDEX staking node that helps operate components of the exchange. And in return, those node operators uh, have a claim or a, a, a cash flow of 50% of the fees collected by the platform. Okay. Yeah. I mean, while we're on the subject of the token, um, is there governance that uh, the token holders can also participate in? We don't have a governance component yet. That's something that. I think we're looking to build out in the near future and you know the question becomes um how do we decentralize some of these elements over time and start to give more control to the community so you can imagine things around uh, feature development product direction uh, assets that you want to see supported uh, changes to sort of fee structure um you know there's, there's a lot of interesting angles that we can go so you know i think uh governance you know my honest opinion has been a bit of a meme at this point. Um, so, and you see a fair bit of frustration in the market um, with, with protocols that are maybe governance in name only. So we wanna make sure we get it right. Uh, I think we're still in the phase where we have the core team is driving the direction. We have a clear vision for the next version of the product. Uh, after that comes to market, we'll start to consider more of those components. Okay, yeah, do you have any opinions on what, what would be a the most beneficial type of governance structure for any protocol. I know there's, you know, there's locking, I feel like has been a, a pretty big one lately, you know, with Curve and there's a, like Cream is doing like four year locking now, which gets you four times the rewards and four times the, the voting power in the protocol. Um, just what, what are your thoughts on different types of governance structures, if you have any? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, we're almost, basically trying to solve the same problems that something like the US Congress tries to solve, where you get uh, you know, representation for small states that are just guaranteed, and then some that's proportional to population. Uh, you know, proportional weighting to tokens, obviously there's been a lot of concerns that that has just tilted it in favor of a specific set of whales. You see concerns around VC control and the way some of the governance uh, has played out in certain protocols based on just who has the largest holdings. So I, my guess is that the, the best version is, is not yet available. I think it needs to be some combination of proportional to skin in the game. So that does include, you know, kind of your holdings. And, and I, I do like the idea of being able to commit to a period of time and getting a larger vote. Uh, cause clearly, you know, you're increasing your skin in the game by committing to lock these tokens over, over a period of time. I think there's also once the some of the on-chain decentralized identity stuff starts to get built out more i think that'll be interesting to see because you could imagine bringing in a one user one vote uh, element once it's easier to distinguish is this user real or not right the whole problem in the past has been uh, you know, accounts aren't tied to any identity necessarily. It's easy to spin up new fake accounts. So if you give one one account one vote, that can be easily gameable. But as you start to have some of these things with like on-chain reputation, you could have, it makes it much more difficult. You could say, okay, any user who has interacted X number of times with the protocol and done, you know, this level of, um, you know, kind of usage or participation gets one vote. Uh, and so that's going to be something that is much harder to game than just spinning up individual accounts and, and holding some tokens in order to get a vote. 
Yeah, it's 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 kind of difficult. I think proof of humanity was what Vitalik was talking about. I think that's oh, I like that. Yeah, that's what it's related to the on-chain identity. I think. Um, but anyway, this is kind of a hot topic right now. Thought we would touch on it. Uh, so y'all are you're live on Ethereum mainnet right now, and then you mentioned Polygon earlier. Uh, are there any other chains that y'all are on, or L2s, other L1s? So the focus for the IDEX hybrid liquidity launch is going to be Polygon, and that's mainly due to the low settlement costs. So we talked at the beginning that one of the limiting factors for order book DEXs has been the cost of settling individual trades. And if you imagine you know, Ethereum L1, uh, a trade right now costs anywhere from 10 to $50, that's really not going to be competitive with your kind of top centralized exchanges, uh, especially when a bigger trade can lead to multiple settlements. So we really think that this product is, is going to shine the most in a low cost settlement environment. So we're starting with Polygon. The question then becomes strategically, where do we want to go next? We think that the long-term future is most likely assets being bridged pretty seamlessly and frictionlessly, um, and hopefully basically for free. In that case, you could imagine us picking a primary settlement layer based on throughput and settlement costs that kind of meets our operational needs and bridging assets that are either native to that particular L2 or maybe on other EVM compatible chains, uh, something like Avalanche or BSC, and using that as one settlement environment. I think we're a bit of ways off from that that point from that future. So I think there's definitely a clear opportunity to expand to other layer ones and uh, L2s and have an instance of IDEX that's available there to trade the assets that are on those specific networks. Um, for us, it ultimately comes down to inventory. You know, we want to be able to offer our users whatever assets they want to trade using this model. And so that currently means being in more places than one. Okay. Yeah. And let's go through the process of that real quick. Like if the index co-op decided, you know, we, we've got DPI, the DeFi Pulse Index. If we decided we wanted to have a liquidity pool on IDEX, what would be the process to do that? And would we have to pick, you know, hybrid liquidity or just AM or how, how does that whole process work? Yeah, so there is a process in order to get the assets registered into our smart contracts. So we were talking about governance earlier. Maybe that's something that we look to decentralize so that it's not a blocker from our team. So we've been having a conversation with the guys from Index. We want to bring some of these assets on board. So that first step is to register them within the exchange contract so that they can be traded within the platform. And now that's actually the only requirement to allow the market to exist. Uh, but as we've seen in the past, we really think it's important to seed that market with the initial liquidity that can come from having an AMM liquidity pool. Uh, so that's a second step to deploy that contract. And then at that point, that contract is open for anyone in the ecosystem to deposit funds into. You can either do that via RUI, or if you're a more savvy user, that can be done on chain as well. So, you know, we think that uh, that's, that's going to be a key component is you know, once those things are live, is making it easy for anyone to uh, support the liquidity because we, I think that's one thing that AMMs showed a clear appetite for is getting retail users to participate in what has historically been something that's gated by technology, expertise, and capital. Uh, the fact that someone with $100 can throw those assets into a liquidity pool and earn a yield is pretty cool and, and all what DeFi is about. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, do y'all have any restrictions on the types of uh, assets? I, I just, you might not want to talk about the regulatory environment right now, but, you know, we've seen pressure uh, on Sushi, or not Sushi, Uniswap on, you know, certain assets that they're not allowing to trade on their main interface. And then I think Gary Gensler had a comment a couple days ago and it, on his uh, hearing that you know, Coinbase has a lot of, tokens listed that are probably considered securities i guess what process do y'all go through in determining what you will or will not allow on the protocol it's you know speaking as an operator in the space i can say it's definitely frustrating you know the some of the comments were it, you know were very from the sec and we're very clear on what is and what is not security but they're unwilling to come out and give guidelines that would 
make it clear whether or not a specific token is or is not a security. Um, so I'll just say we're taking uh, kind of a cautious middle of the road approach here. We are IP blocking US customers. Um, anyone else is able to access with just a wallet. So that's one step we're taking to um, from a regulatory perspective. And then when it comes to assets, you know, each one is an independent review. But you know things like a fair launch or community-driven launch, uh, things like you know given out via liquidity mining versus a big public ICO uh, certainly help tilt the scales in, in favor of something that we feel uh, you know more comfortable supporting on the platform. So each thing is a, a unique assessment, though. Yeah, and I, I meant to ask this question earlier, and I, I guess I skipped it, but uh, I was also curious. You know, you talked about you're on Polygon now. I thought y'all were on BSC. Was I? Was, were y'all on BSC at one point, or did I just misread that somewhere? No, that's absolutely right. So we're, we also have our current version deployed on BSC, and I think what we saw was really what drove the insight to building out IDEX Hybrid Liquidity. Um, we had a lot of users show up, check out the platform, like the trading environment, and then went to trade some of the newer assets and found that the liquidity was primarily in liquidity pool DEXs or AMM swap DEXs. And so that was really kind of the light bulb moment that, you know, we talked to the teams, they'd love to provide liquidity to IDEX. They asked us where to send it. And we said, well, you got to work with a market maker. And uh, a lot of those conversations, for the most part, kind of stopped at that point. So we realized we really needed a additional set of product features in order to make it easier for these teams and easier for these communities to bootstrap their assets. Um, and that would really allow the rest of the application to flourish. And what about non-EVM compatible chains? Is that just like so far down the, the roadmap that it's not even in sight? Or is that something that y'all would consider, like something like Solana? Yeah, we're, we're obviously looking at it, right? It's got uh, a ton of buzz. And I think it's um, it's interesting because the lack of EVM compatibility is, I think, both a positive and a negative. Um, it's it's an obvious negative in the sense that there's a lot of tooling, smart contracts already deployed. You know, people have figured out kind of the major mistakes that you can make in Solidity. There's major auditing firms that understand it intimately. So anytime you try to stand up something using a new programming language or kind of programming model, it's going to take some time to build up the, you know, kind of that, that, that muscle or that tool set in order to be able to move faster and, and build bigger and better things. The flip side is that because you have a new programming language, the builders on that platform tend to be, uh, by and large, more serious teams. You get less of the copy paste uh, issues, which you saw in particular with BSC, where platforms would spin up overnight, disappear 48 hours later. Um, that is not as easily done when you have to build these things from scratch. Um, the, the, you know, that point being from scratch, though, is, is obviously something that's weighing into us because when we look at the level of effort to deploy on an EVM chain, it's a couple of weeks, uh, in particular for ones that have really truly 100% compatibility. So I think it's something we're keeping our, our eye on. We also, frankly, have a little bit of a, a bad taste in our mouths from when we tried to do this a couple of years ago on EOS. And, and it's funny, if you talk to any builder who was on Ethereum at the time, looked to expand to EOS, pretty much everyone regrets that decision uh, because it obviously, one, the network did not really materialize in terms of growth and usage that people had anticipated. Um, two, the programming model was very different and had a lot of issues, even at one point, um, you know, essentially like a DDoS attack filled up the network and people weren't able to get transactions through. And, and then the foundation itself was not very supportive. So it was difficult to get any resources or guidance on what to do. Um, that said, we're now in 2021. So, you know, we're excited by some of the possibilities that other L1s offer. Yeah, when we spoke with uh, Kane Warwick at Synthetics, he had similar sentiments about EOS where he said, you know, we were going to build on there and then we showed up and realized it was a ghost town, I think is what he said. Um, but that's that's interesting that you mentioned you know the the DOS attack or DDoS attack on EOS because I, I I think a similar attack happened on Solana recently. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't want to speculate because I haven't had the time to dig into like what was the cause. I saw people saying one you know, it was intentional, others saying it was a function of some IDO and bots trying to get in. Um, I think the interesting thing with Solana will be to see 
as the network grows, can they actually keep transaction costs down? Or there's kind of this axiom, this thought that if the block space is available, people will fill it up and then eventually the fee market develops and you you start to bid up the cost of getting transactions in. And a great example to illustrate this is um, the way that yield aggregators um, work. So if you're familiar with yield farming, you deposit assets, you earn a new token, periodically you can harvest that token, sell it for the underlying assets and redeposit those in order to compound your yield and, and increase the amount of assets that you're farming with. Um, typically, a user might do this once every couple of days. Uh, if it's pretty expensive, like on ETH L1, you might do it once every couple of weeks because um, there's kind of a fixed cost every time you want to do that compounding. If you look at much uh, lower cost, higher throughput chains, these yield aggregators are compounding sometimes every minute uh, because it's affordable to do so. If you run the math, you get like ever so slightly an improvement on your on your yield, on your projected yield, and the fixed cost is low enough that it makes sense to do it. But you know, arguably those are not valuable transactions in the sense that you know, your actual income would be about the same if you did it once a day. It takes up block space and makes it harder for other users to transact. Uh, but it's you know kind of on this axiom that if it's cheap and if it's available, someone's going to take advantage of it and fill it up. So uh, I. I don't see why that wouldn't apply to other high throughput, low cost chains. Um, and at some point, you know, the fee market is, is what's required to, to manage that, that usage. Um, one other analogy is if you're familiar with like API development in general for applications, uh, generally, if you have a public API, they limit, they rate limit you in terms of how many times that you can call it, uh, or they require you to make an account so that they know who you are and can rate limit you. So this is not just like a decentralized blockchain problem. It's in general a problem if you offer something for free, uh, people are going to abuse it. And the way that blockchains solve it is through a fee market. So um, it seems like fees will grow in, in, at some point in the future, regardless of what your throughput is. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. That's that's really insightful. Uh, appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, so let's let's move to just like more broad, general topics. Uh, so I just feel like there's so much going on in the space on a day to day basis, and it's it's so hard to keep up. Like, what does your news funnel look like? Like, where do you focus your energy from? I guess like just a knowledge intake standpoint. Yeah, it's tough, right? Um, you know the. I, I kind of look at it as um, that there's areas to get like broad information and then and then kind of deeper information. So obviously the kind of news network, if you will, is crypto Twitter. That's where things hit first. That's where you know announcements of new happenings, hacks, issues, uh, new projects generally kind of see that coming through at, at, you know, at the crypto Twitter level. So, um, you know, I probably spend an hour a day, sometime in the morning, sometime in the evening, checking in, seeing what's going on and keeping a pulse on the market. You've then got uh, telegram rooms, which can give you a little better, more nuanced conversation. So one that I like a lot is lobster Dow. I think it's got a lot of builders and, um, you know, market participants. It's not just a room for people who are speculating on these assets, but also things, people that are building out projects and communities. So I think you get a lot of insightful information coming through that channel in particular, a few others that uh, kind of pay attention to. And then last is for projects that I follow more closely is, is jumping into the discords. So following the announcements, making sure I'm up to date on everything that's happening in the project popping into the general every once in a while and reading the conversations to see uh, what's kind of the latest news and information. But it, it, honestly, it's it's a bit overwhelming. Um, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. There's definitely a benefit to focusing outside of just your own project. Um, I'm not aware of an other industry where you know, siloing off 20% of your time to do something other than your primary work can lead to, you know, large benefits and improvements in your main product. And I think uh, this this hybrid liquidity is a great example. If we hadn't been paying attention to how the market was evolving, what other projects were doing, how the technology was being utilized, you know, this is not something we would have been working to develop or maybe not to develop as early as, as we decided to. So uh, I think there's definitely a benefit to keeping up to date on the space. That said, you could spend all day scrolling Twitter and never run out of content. So it's, it's definitely a bit of a balance. Yeah. Do you have anyone on Twitter that you uh, specifically 
like to follow or like do you have any favorites that you like to follow for information like that sure so you know i like a lot of the um you know some of the traders can be interesting just for market sentiment but i try not to put too much time or stock into that because you know as mentioned at the top been here for five years expect to be here for five plus more um I think, uh, I don't know how he would say, but Viscantes uh, is definitely one of my favorite follows. He got me early into Olympus, which has been one of the more interesting um, kind of innovative models with respect to stable coins and protocol controlled value. So I think a lot of cool ideas coming out of that area. And I think that's one of the most powerful communities. Um, there's another follower or another account, Sisyphus, uh, like the guy in, in Greek mythology who's carrying the rock up the hill. Um, who has a lot of good information on new projects. I, I don't have the time to really dig in and stay up to date on every new thing that's launching. So instead, I try to find some people that are pretty early to these things, can, can clue me into new things to check out, because um, I'm always looking for new ideas, new primitives, uh, either just to explore out of my own curiosity or things that could be beneficial for us at IDEX. Yeah, and on that note, like what other projects out there uh, are catching your eye? Like what other teams are, are doing things that you think are, are really interesting? Yeah, so I mentioned Olympus, you know, our roots were actually in stable coins. We started with a fiat backed stable coin. We spent a ton of time thinking about algorithmic stable coins. So I think Olympus and, and Ohm is the, the, the asset is a really interesting model, essentially trying to be a central bank of crypto. Uh, over time, acquiring more and more assets that are loosely correlated with one another and can be used to back the underlying value of the um, you know, primary token. So I think that's a really interesting model and one that it, it applies all the things that I find interesting about crypto. It's it's both the decentralized element of kind of having a protocol control these assets. It's the game theory element. If you're familiar with the project, they have this meme of 3-3, which is basically if everybody holds, everybody wins. Um, and it can feel kind of Ponzi-esque at times, but it's uh, it, it's actually done a great job at galvanizing the community and, and rallying them around a specific goal. So I, I find that, as that, that aspect absolutely fascinating, just you know how 10,000 people can all be aligned even though they've never met each other. Their shared interest is you know this this code on a blockchain um so i guess in line with that the other thing that i think will be hot over the next couple of years is just a resurgence of the concept of a dao and in, in some ways you know every project is a dao with a treasury that uh, can be used to grow the product either by building more products swapping those assets for pro other, other protocol tokens and you know, managing that and allowing the project to grow and, and build new products and features is kind of how these things become more successful. So I think that's a really interesting area just to, to see it evolve. Um, you know, the DAO had the, the DAO from 2016 kind of put a bad taste in people's mouths with respect to these concepts. I think it was you know early from a tooling perspective. Uh, it, I think it had like 15 percent of the ether supply in it at some point. Um, so, you know, regardless of your opinion on the hard fork and whether or not that was necessary, it, it clearly turned people off of the concept for quite some time. But I think it's, it's coming back. Uh, people are comfortable with it. And I think you're going to see a lot of cool innovation on that front in the next couple of years. Yeah. And what about the metaverse for you? Are you dabbling in the metaverse? Do you have any PFPs or NFTs in your wallet? I have a couple. I think this is one that I, it, it, I have to learn. Uh, that even even if I feel late, the fact that I'm in crypto 24-7 means I'm probably still early. And, and I have to admit that NFTs was one where I made that mistake. I was like, oh, wow, these things are going up like crazy. I'm, I'm definitely late to the party here. So I did not, I don't have any punks. I don't have any board apes, right? And, and I kind of missed kind of the level that those would, would grow to. I think NFTs, it's interesting, you know, we kind of hoped DeFi would be the thing that brought crypto to the masses, but I guess NFTs are just more easily relatable to your average person. Um, and, and, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's a digital flex, you know, people buy all sorts of things in real life that are you know, artificially scarce, whether it's cars or purses or jewelry. And, and a lot of times it's to be able to show either you have certain tastes in fashion, certain tastes in cars, um, you're aware of 
this designer and it's kind of a signal of um, your status either within a community wealth what have you and i think nfts have have clearly become that both within crypto so you see funds buying things like fidenzas as um you know a way to flex like we are cultured crypto funds and we own some of the what we believe will be the most important crypto art or things like jay-z buying a punk uh, as you know, a way to show his alignment with kind of this new movement, and um, you know something that you know he thinks is obviously cool and, and unique, and something that um, kind of shows as a bit of a status symbol. So I also think the ability for communities to rally around certain NFTs is awesome. The whole pudgy penguin thing is hilarious. Just seeing how many people you know adopted that, and um, you know, really started to just love these. Uh, adorable little internet critters, and I think it, it creates, uh, you know, kind of a shared connection within the metaverse, which is just, it's just a lot of fun, and I think it's got a, a lot of potential in the future. Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well when you said it's just fun, and I think you know, in like five years, when we look back on, you know, this time in the in the crypto space, I, I think we're just going to see, you know, all these PFPs is just you know a very wholesome time on Twitter. Uh, when sometimes it can it can kind of cut away and, and get a little brutal sometimes. Um, so the index co-op, we've got the DeFi Pulse Index. Uh, we've got the Metaverse Index. We're about to come out with the Data Index, uh, which has like, you know, Chainlink, the graph, and all these uh, data-centric uh, protocols. Uh, what idea would you have for the index co-op? Like if you were to go into the governance forum, and type up a proposal, uh, what type of index would you like to see the index co-op come out with? Uh, that's interesting. I haven't given the index uh, composition much thought. You know, one of the things that we're excited about is, you know, being able to offer, as I mentioned, inventory is a key thing for us. Like what can customers trade and how are we giving them a new way to trade it? So I think that's something that's exciting for us is using these products that allow users to get broad exposure to DeFi, for example. Um, in terms of indexes, so I don't know if you're familiar with the Masari dashboard. They have a great uh, way of segmenting projects that's that's pretty cool. It's, you know, DEXs, exchange tokens. Those are the ones I remember off the top of my head. So, uh, you know, perhaps like a DEX basket would be something that makes sense. Um, you know, or maybe a perpetual DEX basket. You know, you're bullish on a particular space or a particular area, but you don't have uh, either the time or kind of the, the you know the the knowledge or inclination to be creating a balanced portfolio on your own. You know, I think that's where it's really an opportunity for these products to shine. Um, so, you know, I, I think in general, giving users more ways to access kind of exposure is what crypto is all about. So that's why I think Index has, a, has an awesome product. And then just, you know, the, the some of the unique uh, benefits of having the market rebalance these assets for you is just like, you know, one of the cool mechanisms that flips, uh, flips things on its head and it's very different than the way things are done in traditional finance, which is a lot of the, the goal of crypto is not just to copy what's being done elsewhere, but find innovative new things that you can only do because of the introduction of a blockchain. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one that we haven't heard of yet is like a, an exchange token index and that way you can throw you know bnb in there uh uni sushi obviously idex uh maybe even like quick swap uh yeah that, that would be a very uh very interesting one actually and like i think ftx has a token too i would if we could throw that in there yeah that's that's an interesting one um okay let's let's go back to idex um so we've talked about some of the more recent developments that are coming on, you know, with Polygon. But looking out a little bit further, I mean, what most excites you about this project right now, Alex? The thing that I get most excited about is we're, we're coming out with a third way of crypto trading, right? So you have centralized exchanges with high performance exchange, but they're custodial. You have to trust them with their funds, with your funds and you know, there's no shortage of examples of where that can go wrong. The other side, you have DEXs, which operate entirely on a blockchain, which allow for new unique primitives like liquidity pools. They're non-custodial, but they have their own challenges with things like front-running, trade collisions, 
uh, it, it all kind of stems from the fact that the exchange is being operated in a purely decentralized uh, execution environment. And so with that, you don't have necessarily the performance or the guarantees that you can get from a centralized exchange. So you know, there's clear kind of trade-offs between the two. And I think we're the first credible attempt to really combine the best of both, bringing that performance throughput execution guarantees of centralized exchange with some of those unique properties, just non-custodial liquidity pools of DEXs. And so when we think about the future, it's really kind of pushing on this path of how can we kind of um, build on this unique capability, which is this combined uh, architecture and start to incorporate more and more things that neither a DEX nor a traditional centralized exchange could do. And I think that's going to be really building out that integration with other DeFi primitives, whether that's other types of liquidity pools, other pricing curves, leverage through perpetual type AMMs, et cetera. Okay. Well, I, we're kind of coming up on time a little bit and i think we're running out of questions too other than the you know the wind moon questions um but is there anything if else i that... knew i would love to tell you <laughs> right we all would um but is there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to touch on specifically about idex or just the space in general no nothing in particular um i just just great great conversation appreciate the questions always like talking both about the project but just crypto in more general in, in more general terms I think that's what keeps me motivated in the space is just how much there is to learn every day. Um, I knew I should do this full time when I found that, you know, on my lunch break in my evenings and in the mornings, you know, anytime I had a moment, I was listening to a podcast, checking out threads on Twitter or Reddit. Um, you know, just if you're a curious person, this space has no shortage of interesting opportunities to learn and grow. So i um, excited to be a part of that. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question too. Which podcasts are you listening to right now, uh, crypto related? Uncommon Core is without a doubt, I think, the best podcast out there. It's um, Hasu from Paradigm and, and occasionally Suzu. They have great guests, um, fantastic research, and very insightful. So if you haven't heard that series, you can probably go through and, and start it from the beginning and, and get something valuable out of each podcast. Yeah, I would also highly recommend that podcast. Uh, did you listen to the one they had on game theory? And how really I did. Yeah. yeah, that one was incredible. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. Blew yeah. my mind. Um, okay. Well, last question for you is Alex, where can people go to find out more about you and IDEX? Yeah. So follow us on Twitter. We're at IDEX.io and at Alex Warren. Uh, you can find us in our Discord. We've got links on our profile. We try to be accessible. So we're chatting in Discord uh, throughout the day, chatting in Telegram. So yeah, just come say hey. All right. We'll do. Alex. Appreciate you being here with us today, and uh, congratulations again to you and your family. And thanks for everyone in the audience listening. This is being recorded, so we'll update, we'll upload it in about a week. Uh, have a great rest of your week, everyone. Alex, thanks again. Awesome. Likewise, thanks everyone. Appreciate the time.